Okay, we're going to read from James chapter 5, and starting in verse 14. Is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church, and let them pray over over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of the faith shall save the sick, and the Lord shall raise him up. And if, and if he, he have committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. Confess your faults one another, and pray for one another, that ye may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of the righteous man availeth much. Elias was a man subject to like passions as we are, and he prayed earnestly that it might not rain, and it rained not on the earth by the space of three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth brought forth her fruit. Brethren, if any of you do err from the truth, and one convert him, let him know that he which converteth the sinner from the error of his way shall have a soul, shall save a soul from death, and shall hide the multitude of sins. You can be seated. Well, I think it's neat that we have a place like this to uh, gather this morning. Uh, We didn't have church camping this year, so maybe this is sort of like that. (laughs) Well, today we come to the final sermon in this series of sermons from the book of James. I've enjoyed, uh, tremendously enjoyed studying this book. And uh, I feel like I've learned uh, lots over the past 14 months as I preach these 12 sermons. And uh, I just, again, want to remind you that at no point was I preaching from a perspective of victory uh, in my own life other than just to say I was deeply convicted as I studied and preached and prepared. Uh, The book of James is so practical and uh, easy to understand, hard to miss the point that is um, being talked about. And I, for one, am committed to work on the areas where I have been, where that God has brought to my attention, where I can uh, improve. I I want to do that. I also want to credit various uh, authors and speakers that I've enjoyed during this uh, time of study. Uh, some of my uh, go-to uh, favorites would be uh, Warren Wiersbe and David Jeremiah, uh, Matt Chandler, um, Paul David Tripp, and there's just numerous others. Um, I should also uh, say, last but not least, our very own uh, Aaron Lapp uh, has a very good commentary on the, the book of James and uh, appreciate uh, the work that he has done in that, uh, in, in writing the book of James and, and other books. And these are just some of the sources. Uh, I, by nature, am a gatherer, I guess. Uh, I, uh, there's very few things that I preach that are completely original with me. Um, I, I appreciate, um, yeah, leaning on others and some of these sources have greatly inspired my thinking and, and pushed me in a direction that uh, was presented here. As I preach these sermons, I've tried to be intentional about 
connecting these sermons to the book of Proverbs because I think James does. And I've also been intentional about trying to connect the book of James to the Sermon on the Mount, which is something that I think James does. I think James was the very first book of the New Testament that was written. And if you think about the fact that he, being the half-brother of Jesus Christ, um, you could probably find some similar styles and even a, make a connection right there uh, between the book of James and the Sermon on the Mount on those, just on that alone. I think for me, one of the strongest challenges of the book of James is the simple putting to practice what we profess. I don't think there's anything that's been stronger in, in, yeah, in front of me as I prepared and, and studied. That message comes through just about as clearly as, as could be. And I'm encouraged, I guess is the word, comforted, to realize that that seems to have been an issue in James's time, nearly 2,000 years ago. It is an issue in our time. In 2019, the, years, the, the, the age that we live in, it seems that the gap that tends to get wider between what, is what one professes and what one actually practices. It's an age-old issue, I believe, but we struggle with that right here in our own Weavertown Church. We deal with that. And the plea of this book, I think one of the pleas is to, for Christians, believers, for Weaver Towners, to develop and find how to create a smaller gap between what we profess and what we actually practice. I think James attempts to bring some order into our lives by just giving us some basic and fundamental um, instructions. In this book, there are 108 verses, and there's 54 commands, exactly half of the 108 number. And these commands are not necessarily suggestions. They're imperatives. Humble yourselves, he says. Submit to God. Stop sinning. Be doers of the word. And those sorts of commands are repeated throughout this book as instructions for the readers of all ages, ours included. And I think another um, theme of the book is a call to spiritual maturity. Again, I think the, the narrowing of the gap between what is practiced and what is actually professed. Um, hopefully, there's, uh, hopefully we can see connection there. Spiritual maturity in our day is still one of our greatest needs. If you look at the problems that James deals with or addresses um, throughout these chapters, you can see that many of the characteristics that James addresses are characteristics of little children. For instance, Little children tend to be especially impatient with difficulty. Little children tend to be especially 
um, bragging, maybe big talk and small actions. Poor verbal restraint and control. The things that come to their mind just kind of come out. It's usually little children that are especially noticeable with conflict and fighting among them, even people that are close to them, maybe especially with people that are close to them. It's little children that deal with collecting and hoarding. And you've probably noticed that physical maturity is not always the same as spiritual maturity. They're not necessarily on the same tracks always. And you've probably noticed that physical maturity does not always come on, it's not always pleasant, it's not always easy. For instance, the teenager who's working on the bridge between childhood and adulthood generally has some frustrations along the way and some failures. But if the teenager keeps pressing forward, if the teenager keeps striving for what's next and what's better, there's definitely blessings awaiting that person. And that is exactly true in a spiritual aspect as well. When we keep pressing, in spite of failure, in spite of challenges along the way, we keep pushing for something better and something that's next in terms of what God has for us, we can find spiritual maturity as well. <clears throat> Mature Christians are happy Christians, useful Christians, and Christians that are encouraging other Christians and encouraging and building up the local church, the local body of believers. As we studied the book of James, it has been my prayer that we'd be strengthened to do that very thing, that we at Weavertown would be strengthened to do that very thing, to learn together and to mature together, to be happy Christians, to be useful Christians, to be Christians who encourage and, and strengthen our local group here at, at uh, a body of believers that we worship with. My subject today as we get to this final uh, passage in James chapter 5, verses 13 to 20, I've entitled it The Gift of Prayer. And I find it amazing as I um, reflect on um, how James closes this book, and I ask myself and I ask you the question, if you were writing the book of James, how would you go about closing the book? How would you go about bringing a climax or a consummation of the thoughts together that have been addressed so far. Perhaps you would write a benediction, or perhaps you would write some final um, words of greeting or address, kind of like Paul does. James, on the other hand, kind of circles and captures a lot of the different thoughts that he's been writing about as a summary, and especially um, a challenge to prayer. And I find that enlightening and engaging. I think it's instructive for, for us as a group today. Now James talks about speaking quite a lot in the book of James. And the ability to speak 
is, is truly an amazing gift. And for people who do not have the ability to speak, can understand the frustration in ways that the rest of us can't. And that is especially true if speaking is used to glorify God. And as we've, we've noted, James does talk about speaking quite a lot. The, the use of words and the choice of one's um, verbiage and that sort of thing. Earlier in chapter 5, there is mention of negative uses of our speaking, our words, in verses 9 and verse 12. And this section before us today, I think every verse either directly or indirectly talks about words and how one should speak, how we are to, to speak as believers. There's mention of singing and confession, and then there's some instructive, uh, practical words about um, talking to those who are straying and wondering uh, in the last couple of verses, our, our ability to intercede and pray, to come alongside and mentor um, where there's needs. And seven times the word prayer is mentioned in our text today. Now prayer at its most basic form is talking, talking to God. That's prayer at its most basic form, talking to God. Prayer is not about stuffing our pleasures. It is not about, not primarily about erasing our pain and our frustrations. Prayer is wanting to see God's will done on earth as it is in heaven. That is one of the basic forms of prayer that I tend to miss. I tend to pray about my needs and my wants and things that are paining me for whatever reason, whether it's my own dumb fault or whatever it is. Prayer is wanting to see God's will done in our world, in the circle of, of the space that is ours, that we occupy. Notice, especially the Lord's Prayer, how Jesus aimed his prayer with these words. He said, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's the right perspective on prayer. And one of the best ways for us to love others is to pray for them. It is one of the best ways for us to love others is by praying for them. And Jesus is a great example, again, in this. The New Testament tells about Jesus praying for others on numerous occasions. And the Bible tells us that even now he is seated at the right hand of God, interceding for us. Even after showing all that selfless love on the cross, even after resurrecting, even after ascending to heaven, Jesus continues to express his love and care for us by praying for us. How powerful is that? And prayer in that similar way is a powerful way for us to care, to express care for others. After all, we are part of the same family. 
We are sons and daughters, brothers and sisters of, of, uh, of each other. And that is why we pray, again, according to the Lord's Prayer, our Father, which art in heaven. We share common goals. And that's why we pray for our daily bread. And we pray about our debts and our temptations. That's the right perspective on prayer. There is certainly lots to be said about praying in private. But this passage, I believe, especially highlights the power of collective prayer and the importance of praying as a community. And I'd like for us to think about that as we go through the lesson here today. Now, I've divided this passage into four sections. Four sections here in our, uh, as an outline here for us. In verse 13, we'll talk about the prayer for hardships. In verses 14 to 16, the prayer for sickness. Verses 17 to 18, the prayer for our nation, or the nation, in Elijah's case. And verses 19 and 20, the prayer for the wayward. So we'll go through it in that order. Um, I think I'm going to move this over just a little bit so I can uh, see my overhead here without turning around too much. All right, prayer for hardships. The word afflicted here in the Greek simply means difficult circumstances, things that are happening to us and around us that are difficult. It has to do with, with hard situations, circumstances. And we're talking about, in our terms, we talk about somebody being in trouble. And that's sort of a good translation. And frequently, as you know, we go through life and we face difficulties. And some of those difficulties have nothing to do with sin in our lives or in other people's lives, necessarily. Many of those difficulties are not the result of the chastening of the Lord, even. And what we should do when we find ourselves in these trying circumstances, well, we should not grumble, ever. The Bible tells us to be thankful in all things, in everything give thanks. And the key the last, is the last part of that verse where it says, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. We talked about that in one of the, one of the previous uh, sermons. We should never grumble. Secondly, we should never criticize. We should never criticize people around us when we're in trouble, when, we're, when others are having an easier time of it than we are. And James chapter 5 talks about the swearing of oaths. James chapter 5 verse 9. And aside, aside from that, we should never blame the Lord. Or others for that matter. The Bible indicates in James chapter 1, verse 5, that when we're in difficulty, we should pray and ask for wisdom. And James chapter 1, verse 5 says that if we ask for wisdom, he gives us the wisdom generously. And that's what God wants. Prayer can, prayer can remove afflictions. Hardships and difficult circumstances that we're in can be removed 
as a result of prayer, if that's God's will. But prayer can also be a way for us to, to receive that wisdom, to receive that grace, that insight that's needed to deal with the circumstance and the situation. Prayer has a way of conditioning us, reminding us that we are not in charge. And by nature, that's where we go with our lives. I do. That's where we go with our lives. We tend to think that we're in charge. It's our schedule that matters. It's what I want, and it's my pleasures, and my wants, and my goals, and the things that I'm looking for in other people that aren't met that cause me affliction, difficulty. And prayer has a way of conditioning us. James chapter 4 verse 6 tells us that he gives us more grace. And 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul prayed that God might change the circumstances that he was facing. But instead, Paul got grace from God. The grace that he needed to turn weakness or difficulty into a matter, an issue of strength for him. Jesus prayed in Gethsemane that the cup would pass from him, and it was not removed. Instead, God gave the Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the grace to endure something that none of us have ever remotely come close to suffering. James indicates further that not everybody goes through trouble at the same time. While some of us are afflicted, there are others of us who are feeling good. We're feeling merry. And the instruction is kind of similar. Give God the glory. If you're feeling good, what we tend to do, what I tend to do, is to sort of take a certain amount of satisfaction for myself. And to sing psalms is a way of giving praise, honor to God, and it's a reminder, if not verbal reminder, it's a subconscious reminder that we are not in charge. The same general aspect of the need of prayer. <clears throat> the mature Christian knows how to sing when he's suffering. Job, verse 30, Job chapter 35 talks about songs in the night. And some of you, perhaps better than I, know what it's like to not be able to sleep or to have something weighing on us, some sort of circumstance, some kind of situation that's weighing on you, not being able to sleep because of it. Our singing ought to be an expression of, of our inner spiritual life. Paul and Silas, um, while they were in the Philippian jail, prayed and sang as part of their, um, and it ended up being part of God's deliverance for them. Moving on then to chapter uh, 5, verse 14, prayer for sickness. And this is a clear, um, unmistakable instruction about anointing of oil. And it's something that doesn't happen real frequently in our midst. Sometimes it does, occasionally. I would say at least a couple of times a year at the minimum. I want to just take a little bit of time and talk about anointing of oil especially since it's right in our text here, can't miss it. 
How many of you have ever been present when there was anointing of oil administrated? Raise your hand. Many of you. Lots of you have been present when there was anointing of oil. I can't help but reflect on the last one that we were involved in, and that was Mary Kaufman. Mary was diagnosed with terminal cancer, inoperable, and it was in some way or another probably going to take her life. And so she, they requested anointing of oil. And several of us pastors were there at their house. There were some family members and some friends that were there. Their living room there, their smallish living room, was uh, pretty well filled up. And we had a good time together of sharing and crying together. And um, John shared a very meaningful devotional as part of the service. And Mary especially uh, talked about her sickness and her challenge. And Dave talked at length about or a relative uh, talked about the challenges that he's facing as a result of her sickness. And then we gathered around Mary and Dave, and we prayed. And I closed the prayer, and uh, I have a small bottle of olive oil that I carry with me at times like that, and uh, I poured a bit of oil on Mary's head and closed the prayer. And that was sort of the extent of the service. Mark chapter 16. Mark chapter 6 verse 13 is the only other mention of anointing of oil in the Bible. Where it mentions that Jesus' disciples anointed with oil. And in behalf of those that were sick. But James chapter 5 is really the only passage in scriptures where there is plainly a prescription for the practice in the life of the church. There's five important points. Who should call? Verse 15 makes it clear that the sick should call. And verse 14 It indicates, I think, the Greek word here for sick has the idea of, of, um, of yeah, something major. I don't necessarily believe that anointing of oil is for a common cold or a stomach flu or some influenza of some kind. I think we may be sometimes even quicker to consider ourselves sick than at other times in, in um, maybe our parents or our grandparents' history. I, I can't say that for, for a fact. But when there is serious sickness, the prescription here is to call for collective prayer and specifically elder prayer. Call for the elders of the church. Calling for the elders, I think, should not necessarily be the Christian's first recourse with any form of sickness or 
some kind of discomfort that we're feeling. However, I think this passage indicates that we do have a backstop. We have a resource within the local church when there is escalating and dire physical conditions. And I think that level of support should not be considered a replacement for seeking medical help, but it should be an appeal to God in that condition or alongside that condition and perhaps even over that condition. Who should come? James 5 verse 14 specifically mentions the elders of the church. The New Testament consistently, and I think very persuasively, attributes church leadership, formal leadership in the local church to a plurality of leaders. And this stands out to me as I look at this, this text. The elders, plural. Maybe that's a little bit instructive for us when we see perhaps other cultures or other Christian groups and how that is, how this is, or how um, seeking for healing is, is, um, is done. It's not a one-man department, but it's elders, plural, a team of pastor elders leading the local church. And those are the ones, the people that we have the strongest connection to, the people that have the most interaction with from week to week. We're not running all over the country looking for some person. We call for the elders of the church to come and administer this, this, uh, this visual of anointing. Not because the elders have a hotline to God. Not because the elders have some sort of ability to perform something sensational. The power is not in the elders. I want you to just see that as clear as could be. The text makes it clear. The power is not in the elders. The power is not in the oil. It's, about, it's not about saying some cute series of words. The power is in God. And whatever comes out of that, whatever is part of the anointing service, needs to point to that. God needs to be lifted up. God needs to be honored. And the focus needs to be on God, not on a person, and not on what is actually done as part of that healing service. Calling for the elders is a sick person's way of coming to the church and asking for collective prayer. There are definitely times where we should seek God individually. But again, there is something to, to point out, especially as it relates to collective prayer and praying with others. And there is so much power in collective prayer. What should the elders do? Well, the text says the elders should pray. And the emphasis, again, I repeat, the emphasis on this text is on prayer, not on the anointing, not on the gathering of the elders. It says, let them pray over him, anointing as they pray. The grammar of this, passage, of this passage clearly communicates that the central reason the elders are, have come is to pray. Prayer is primary. Anointing is secondary. 
Anointing, as we see, accompanies prayer. The prayer is the power. God is the power. And for us to pray and ask him is a reminder, again, not that we are not in charge. There is a higher power. There is a much greater sovereign than us. Anointing accompanies prayer. The power is not in the oil, but it's in the God to whom we pray. And I want to just note here that unlike the Catholic sacrament of extreme unction, which the Catholics use and perhaps other groups as well in some form or other, the claim of extreme unction, according to the Catholic faith, is that it is administered just before death as a way of cleansing any leftover sin that might be in a person's life. The text here in James indicates nothing like that, at least that I can see. In fact, I think the prayer and the anointing is not to prepare one for death as much as it is to prepare one for life, either physical life or eternal life. And besides that, I think it's important for us. Well, well, let me just say it this way. It is easy for us when we're praying for a sick person to, to sort of, I'm using my own words here, to, to limit God to physical healing. And I think that there's something to be said about emotional and spiritual healing that, is, that exceeds and supersedes physical healing. And that's something that, that we perhaps tend to overlook when we're in times, when we're in the presence of a person who has a terminal sickness, who is pretty much going to lose his or her life because of the condition that has come on their outside of a first-class miracle. Spiritual life, emotional life, physical life, and just general well-being is something that should be part of our prayers. Why anoint with oil? And here's the part that seems perhaps especially strange to me as I think of it, and maybe to all of us in some way or another. The problem is that I'm limited. I, I can't really see the eternal perspective like God can, and so I'm going to have to let it with him. But the problem is that perhaps we have not considered the place of oil or the act of anointing throughout Scripture. And there are, frankly, not very many places and times in, in Scripture where this is mentioned. Throughout the Bible, anointing, and I'm just saying anointing, not necessarily anointing of oil, and both the Old and New Testament is an indication of consecration of that person to God for a period of time, for an extended period of time, perhaps even a lifetime. And anointing, like I said, in both the Old and New Testament is an indication of consecrating that person to God. It is the opposite of claiming a person for ourselves. We can't lose this person. This person can't die. Instead, we're saying, God, this person is yours. He or she has been yours. And it's a giving, it's a consecration to God. That's the indication of anointing in both the Old and New Testament. The act of anointing does 
not, as some claim, confer grace. It does not particularly in and of itself remit sin. And I think we have to be careful as we look at this passage and we look at the rest of, of, the, uh, of verse 15. Verse, 14, verse 15, it says that God will raise him up and if there are sins, they're going to be remitted or forgiven. This does not imply, I don't think, that the act of anointing creates remission. God sent Jesus to do that. And consecrating an individual in this way has a way of, of falling in line with the plan that God has for, for them. And that saying, that, that conscious, perhaps even subconscious saying yes to God is the process. That becomes the focus in all of our lives. Actually, all of our lives, every day, we should be having a pattern of saying yes to God. And services, whether they're formal or informal services like this, should simply be an illustration or an extension of our habitual saying yes to God. We should never say no to God. We should probably never say wait to God. We should, our natural and instinctive response to God should always be yes. An anointing of oil is an illustration of that. And I think our habitual saying yes to God is what causes sins to be removed, for us to be delivered from the grip of sin. <clears throat> the closest thing that I could find or illustrations to anointing with oil. Remember the story in where Jesus um, was confronted by the blind man who wanted healing. And Jesus got mud, or he created mud, and smeared it on the guy's eyes and told him to go wash and he would be healed. Another um, story is when Hezekiah in Isaiah 38, when Hezekiah was sick, he had some sort of boil or tumor, or I don't know what it was, but they, they got a lump of figs, according to the instruction of God, to the messengers, to get a lump of figs and put it on the boil as a salve. And in that case, also Hezekiah received healing. I think anointing of oil is an external act that accompanies or gives expression to the inner desire and the character of faith to dedicate someone or some situation to God in a special way. It's an external act that accompanies prayer, sort of like fasting. How should they pray? Finally, after all of that, we have some specific and important clarity on how we should pray in those times. And it simply says, in the name of Jesus, in the name of the Lord. 
in the name of the Lord. Listen, we are not sovereigns of our lives. And prayer, any prayer, needs to be and should be a continual reminder of that for us. And especially when we're in some of the most dire and difficult situations of our lives, our prayer should be a focus and a reminder to us that we are not sovereign. We are not in charge. It is not us telling God what to do. But when we pray in the name of the Lord, that means that we can pray confidently. We can pray boldly. We can pray and be expectant that God will show up. God will move on behalf of the situation. In another place in scripture, it says that where two or three are gathered in my name, I am in the midst of them. Matthew 18, I believe. The prayer of faith is simply the prayer of the elders from verse 14. It is not some sensational kind of prayer, I don't believe. It is just talking to God, expressing our need of him in that particular moment. The prayer of faith can and sometimes does heal physically. And the prayer of faith can and should always heal us emotionally and spiritually. It should allow us to rest and it should allow us to enter into that communion with God in that way. To his sovereignty and his timing. The mention of sins being forgiven is again picked up in the last verses which I want to just elaborate on um, when we get to there. Now, prayer for the nation. Prayer for the nation. The text here talks about or cites Elijah as an example of a righteous man, it says, whose prayers created movement. Elijah's prayers created something, um, yeah, there was a cause and effect. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective, it says in another translation. The background of this incident that's talked about here in James is found in 1 Kings chapter 17 and 18, where wicked King Ahab and his queen Jezebel had led Israel away from the Lord into straight-up idolatry. Worship of Baal. And God punished the nation by holding back rain for three and a half years. And we can sort of picture what Lancaster County looks like if we don't get much rain or any rain for a month. Just imagine three and a half years. The heavens were as brass. And the earth was completely unable to produce food crops that were necessary for, for life. And so Elijah challenges the priests of Baal to some sort of showdown on Mount Carmel. And all day long, the priests cried out to Baal. No answer came, none at all. 
And when it was time for the evening sacrifice, Elijah moves into the circle there, and he restores, rebuilds the altar of God. He brings the sacrifice. He puts the wood in order. What's more, he digs a trench around the altar. He pours gallons and gallons of water on top of the sacrifice, and he starts to pray. I'm not going to take the time to read the prayer. It's a sincere and noteworthy prayer. I think it's probably an extension of the prayer that had been on Elijah's mind the last three and a half years. And the fire fell down from heaven and consumed the entire thing from top to bottom. Not from bottom to top, like fire usually consumes, but it consumed it from top to bottom, licked up everything, the water, the rocks, everything was consumed. At this point, Elijah had proven that Jehovah God was the true God. The true God was not Baal. He was a false God. But the nation still needed rain. They still hadn't had any. It was still dry. Still clear blue skies. And Elijah starts to pray for rain. He sent his servant out seven times to see if there was any indication of some storm clouds or anything that would indicate rain. And on the seventh time, the servant indicated a small cloud the size of a hand. And that day, there was an abundance of rain. And the nation was saved. Do we need showers of blessing today? Yes. Yes, uh, we sure do. We need showers of blessing. Right here in our little town of Burdenhan, or wherever we're from, right here in the United States of America, the world in general needs showers of blessings. And how does that get done? Well, I think the text sort of indicates that it happens at least partially through the prayers of prayer warriors. People who are willing to pray and pray again. I especially noticed that in the text here. Elijah prayed and then he prayed again. Continual prayer. Elijah, on the other hand, was a man just like us, like the Bible states. He was not a perfect man. He was not an individual who was so strong that he never had any failings. In fact, right after this, he fell apart. He hit one of the lowest spots of his entire life. He became afraid and discouraged, and he ran away. But the Bible calls him a righteous man, and that is because of his obedience to the Lord, his ability to trust God, and indicated that by his prayer to this sovereign God. You see, prayer is not about getting man's will done on earth. But it's like the Lord's Prayer says, it's getting God's will done on earth, like it already is being done in heaven. Prayer is about getting God's will done on earth. And we should never, ever separate the Word of God from prayer. In fact, I think they can't legitimately be separated. And I think one of the things that separates false prophets and cults and that nature of today, 
where there is prayer being made is where they separate the word of God from prayer. Some preacher or some priest or some charismatic type personality receives a word from God and that supersedes the word of God. I think it's something that we should be aware of. Elijah was not only believing in his praying, but he was persistent in that prayer. He prayed, and he prayed again. On Mount Carmel, Elijah continued to pray, and God sent rain. Too many times, I think, we fail to get God's promises. We fail to realize the blessings that God intends for us because we stop praying. The literal translation of the Greek indicates that Elijah prayed while praying. <laughs> I found that kind of instructing. He prayed while praying. He prayed in prayer. And too many times my prayers are just lazily saying words, perhaps nice sounding, religious sounding words. But sometimes my heart is not in my prayers. We're just doing it because it feels like the right thing or because, like I said before, we're in some situation or some predicament of some kind, that we, some dumb thing that we did. Maybe we sort of adopted the modern form of communication when it comes to prayer where we punch out words on a keyboard and we press the send button and then we've prayed. But prayer power is the greatest power in the world today. And prayer power, I think, comes as a result of persistence. Praying and then praying again. And we need to pray for our nation like Elijah prayed for his nation. God answers prayer. He answered Elijah's prayer. And God will bring change as a result of prayer in his way and his timing when we pray. The final thing here, the section, the fourth section, is prayer for the wayward, the wandering. And I love the fact that he starts this, sub, that he starts this section, verse 19, with the word brethren. Sixteen other times in this book, James uses the word brethren. It's a term of endearment. It speaks of connection and the relational heart of this pastor familiarity that he had with their needs and what they were dealing with. And while James does not specifically mention prayer in these verses, the implication is just as strong as could be, in my opinion. If we pray for the, sick, the afflicted, we pray for the sick, surely we must be in prayer for the brother or sister who wanders from the truth. I think these verses, verses 19 and 20, especially deal with our ministry to a fellow believer who wanders away from the truth. It can mean evangelism, it can mean that, but I think the context is especially clear that it's done in the local body where a brother or sister becomes wayward. Something or some situation causes this person to wander. The verb err in the Greek simply means to wander. It suggests a gradual moving away from an earlier position. 
a gradual moving away from the will of God. The Old Testament term for this, the prophets used to describe this situation in the nation of Israel as backsliding. And sad to say, I'm sad to say that this is a phenomenon that is happening in our world today. And I'm really sad to say that it seems to be happening, it gets pretty close home sometimes, backsliding. It's a tragedy. Sometimes a brother or sister is overtaken in a fault, like Galatians 6.1 says. And usually, usually it's because of a theology that has set in slowly by, but very shortly. And it takes a person in a direction and starts to express itself in actions that the person never intended when they started on that path. That condition is, of course, very dangerous. It's dangerous to the offender because the Bible, especially the book of Hebrews, indicates that there is a time and a place where that person is no longer a Christian, is no longer considered a believer. And this backsliding is also dangerous not only to the individual, but it's dangerous to the church. I tend to think I tend to think that we underestimate the power that hidden sin, that waywardness has in the lives of a group. We can't see the spiritual effect of something like that. But a person who has hidden sin in his or her life, their human spirit connects with the other spirits in that group, and it always has a negative effect. And we tend to underestimate that. A wandering offender can create influence that is difficult to overcome, and it can lead others astray, cause others to wonder. It always has a negative impact. One of, the reasons, one of the reasons that the spiritual members of that group must step in and help the person who has wandered away is for this reason. When there's something wrong in a person's life, mature believers are to step in. I want you to especially notice it does not say anything about the bishop needing to step in, although he probably should. It does not say that the deacon or any of the pastors should step in. It says, what does it say? He that's spiritual, let him know that he which converteth the sinner, it's talking to anyone, anyone, any believer is responsible. I also believe that one of the purposes of confession is for this particular reason. I would even go so far as to say public confession. I think that confession has a way of isolating the sin. Isolating the sin from the sinner. Separation is from the sinner. It frees the believer in the local church to love on the sinner without attaching himself or herself to the sin. Confession is such an important part of 
restitution and reconciliation. <clears throat> I want you to especially notice in verse 19, it says that a person errs from the truth or wanders from the truth. Wanders from the truth. Again, I think the truth is, of course, the word of God. And unless the believer stays close to the word, unless the believer stays close to the truth, he'll start to drift away, is the implication. Jesus warned Peter that Satan was at hand. Jesus warned him that he was going to deny him, and he still did. The outcome of our wanderings, the outcome of people's wandering in our midst is sin. And verse 20 makes it just as clear as could be. Death. That's the outcome. Very sobering. He needs to be converted, like the text says. He needs to be turned back on the right path again. And if we're going to help an erring brother or sister, we need to have an attitude of love for them, a spirit of gentleness, firmness, insistence, persistence. Come alongside them. Point them in a better direction. The last words of the book of James talk about covering a multitude of sins at the end of verse 20. And I'm completely and absolutely convinced that this does not mean that love sweeps things under the rug. In fact, that isn't love. Where there's love, there must be truth, and there must, there must be sunlight, there must be daylight. For sin to be covered has the idea of support for the person and with the person. It's a quote taken from Proverbs 10, verse 12, where it says, Hate stirreth up strife, but love covereth all sins. It has the idea of, of keeping it dry and keeping it um, in, a, in a safe place. And that's, that's the in, importance for us. Covering like a roof or building a pole barn so you can keep your equipment underneath safe and dry. And perhaps that's the, the context of, of sins in an erring brother, where we do it to protect them. It does not mean that we sweep it under the carpet. <clears throat> I think one of the greatest joys to me as a Christian man and as a pastor is to see the pattern of sin broken in people's lives. To see the thinking and the attitudes and the actions of a person change. To be candid and forthright about sin and the wondering, the erring that a person has found themselves in. To deal with the problem with clarity and honesty as compared to lying about it or deceiving about it or pretending that it was someone else's fault and so on. When we see that pattern of sin broken in the life of a brother, it's a source of tremendous joy. The text here in verse 20, 
And I think also in verse 15 indicates that when that pattern of sin is stopped, there are numerous other sins that are stopped also. And I think it's a pattern that we need to embrace and believe in, in our group and in faithful believers everywhere. As I come to the end of this sermon and this series of sermons, I want to reflect on several things. One is that the book of James is a call for us to change our paradigm. To change our paradigm of thinking from what we do naturally and normally. And change that thinking to something that comes and embraces the kingdom of God. By nature, we live as if things depend on us or depend on me and that our needs and our wants and the things that are important to us are the things that dominate and control us. But the book of James, and I think particularly this section of James, is a call for us to live in a way that is opposite to that which comes naturally and normally for us by human birth. It no longer is my needs, my wants, my life, my schedule, my watch that's important. Instead, because of our spiritual birth, it is the kingdom of God that controls and dominates our activities and our actions. I think James closes the book with a reminder that all of us all of us are prone to wonder. In fact, as I stopped and thought of it, I think it's pretty much the emphasis and the theme of the entire book of James. What James has addressed from beginning to end is the scary and the tragic reality that we have to wonder, to stray away from the truth. We tend to wonder and to doubt in moments of trial we wander into temptation. We tend to wander from the grace of God by committing all forms of sins. We tend to wander into prejudice. We tend to wander into separation from what we say and what we, instead of moving toward what we profess. We tend to wander into conflict with one another. We tend to wander into unfaithful grumbling. We wander into unbiblical and unhelpful thinking. We tend to wander into materialism and impatience with God and in our lives in general. We tend to wander into prayerlessness. And what I've just said is a summary of the book of James. We're prone to wonder. We're prone to wonder. My mind was drawn to this verse from the song, Come Now Fount of Every Blessing. The third verse, depending which, which uh, version you're looking at, it says, Oh, to grace, how great a debtor. Daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness, like a fetter, like a chain, bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. Oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above.
It's my prayer that all of us would follow Christ passionately in our lives and that we would seek his kingdom earnestly and passionately. My prayer is that this study of the book of James would have inspired us to have God's will done on earth in our little space that we occupy like it already is being done in heaven.